How did Wisconsin go from the gold standard for election administration in the United States to its laughingstock? What does the partisan investigation into the 2020 election say about how to once again achieve bipartisan cooperation in running elections? What is the future of free and fair elections in Wisconsin and beyond? On Season 3, Episode 7 of the ELB Podcast, we speak with longtime Wisconsin election administrator and attorney Michael Haas. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. Today, I'm joined by Michael Haas. Michael Haas was named city attorney for the city of Madison in May 2020. He previously worked for the state elections agency in Wisconsin for 12 years, including serving as its first interim administrator of the Wisconsin Election Commission. During his tenure, Mike oversaw the statewide recount of the 2016 presidential election, as well as the agency's increased focus on election security. He also served as election division administrator at the Government Accountability Board, as well as staff counsel for both the GAB and the WEC. Mike is now working as city attorney for the city of Madison, Wisconsin, and he joins us today on the podcast to talk about the mess that is the current administration of elections in Wisconsin. Michael Haas, welcome to the ELB podcast. Hi, Rick. Thanks a lot for having me. And I want to say congratulations on your move to UCLA. If I uh, had known you were going there, I would have picked them to go further in my bracket. Oh, yes. Well, uh, by the time this is released, we'll know their future. So (laughs) we're recording this on uh, Friday morning before uh, the next round. The reason I wanted to bring you on the podcast uh, is to talk about the deterioration of election administration and politics in general in the state of Wisconsin. I remember a number of years ago, uh, my friend and colleague, Dan Takaji, who's now the dean of the University of Wisconsin Law School, then he was at Ohio State, uh, had written an article talking about how the uh, GAB, if I I remember correctly what it was called, was kind of the premier nonpartisan election administrative body in the United States. And you served as a lawyer for that body. And so I, I thought we could start by you just walking me through what's happened over the last 10 years uh, to election administration in Wisconsin, and how did things go from the gold standard to the laughingstock? Well, that's a big question. I'll try to uh, summarize it. But you're right, Dan did do, do an article about the Government Accountability Board. And I remember when he came out to Wisconsin to visit our office and talk to folks there. And we're certainly happy to have him now at the UW Law School. I've actually talked to him about that article since because it was, I think, very prescient in that it did uh, hold up the Government Accountability Board as a model for other states. And so, you know, we would go to these national conferences and be sort of proud of ourselves that we were the the standard for nonpartisan election administration, having a body that was overseen by six nonpartisan former judges and having a nonpartisan staff by statute and not answering um, to a partisan secretary of state or lieutenant governor. Well, one thing that Dan pointed out near the end of that article is that the real test for the GAB would be when it became involved in some highly partisan issue. At that point, there would not be a statewide elected official who had the standing to really defend the agency. And when you look back at it, that's partly what happened when the Government Accountability Board uh, was investigating Governor Walker's campaign and other political actors, 
that news became public and it became a very partisan environment, a lot of partisan attacks on the agency. Um, and we did not have an elected official really that was willing to stand up uh, for the agency. The legislature then abolished the Government Accountability Board uh, because it did not like the fact that it was an investigating elected officials, frankly, for activity that previously um, other elected officials, particularly a Supreme Court justice, had, had been fined for um, involving uh, campaign financing, campaign contributions, and illegal coordination uh, with independent um, organizations. So the legislature created the uh, Elections Commission and the Ethics Commission, abolished the Government Accountability Board. Um, they provided that every employee of the GAB would have a spot in one of the two new agencies, except for Kevin Kennedy, the director of the GAB. They literally wrote his job out of the statutes. Um, and so I became the first administrator of the Elections Commission. Uh, that was a body with three Democratic appointees and three Republican appointees. Um, I was appointed un unanimously, uh, served through the 2016 election, the recount of the 2016 presidential election um, that was initiated by Joe Stein, uh, served through 2017, all throughout for 18 months or so, the legislative leadership uh, indicating to me that my confirmation by the state Senate would not be an issue. Uh, at the end of 2017, the attorney general did a, uh, what he called an investigation of a leak of the, uh, re related to the John Doe investigation. And because I had been at the GAB during this John Doe investigation, um, that was used as a reason that the legislature uh, supposedly did not have, or the, the Republicans in the legislature did not have confidence in my leadership, even though I had nothing to do with election administration. And so in 20, early 2018, the, the state Senate uh, voted not to confirm my appointment. I went back to my position as a staff attorney. And then uh, two years later in 2020, I uh, came to the city of Madison and, and am serving as the city attorney. So I guess that's winding a little bit of my personal story in with uh, election administration in Wisconsin. But the bottom line is now that we have a bipartisan elections commission. It was intentionally created by the legislature to serve the partisan views of the political parties. And that has had a tremendous effect on the effectiveness, I think, of the staff and um, the ability of election officials at both the state and the local level to conduct elections in a way that is uh, nonpartisan and, and focused on the voters, frankly. Uh, you know, we, we tried to serve with a voter-centric approach to elections, and I think that approach has, has been affected by the, by the uh, structure that we have in Wisconsin now. So, you know, if that was the end of the story, the move from nonpartisan election administration with retired judges and kind of consensus about how to run elections where eligible voters are able to cast a ballot that's going to be freely and fairly counted to a more divided partisan model that is, um, you know, more like the FEC, where you're likely to have deadlocks and more likely to have politics uh, be injected. I mean, that would be bad enough. But uh, now... Uh, we've moved to 
a really astonishing new stage where this agency is seen as somehow corrupt. This agency is seen as somehow doing things that violate the law. And there's talk about making it more partisan. And so what's happened in the last 18 months that has caused this further deterioration? And how did we get to the point where we have a sheriff talking about arresting the members of this board? I mean, I can't think of really any other place in the country where you have a law enforcement officer talking about arresting members of an election board, other than maybe the case of someone like Tina Peters, who is a Colorado clerk who's being investigated for actually violating legitimate laws related to election security. Right. Well, as you all know, having coined the term the voting wars, um, this is a continuation of, of those battles, I think. And what happened is with, you know, around the rest of the country, the, the 2020 election happened. Um, things that were seen as routine election administration activities suddenly became suspicious. Activities that people did not object to before the election became legal issues after the election um, so that people would have uh, a way to explain away the results of the election and to, to criticize the result. Um, it, it's so very unfortunate. As you mentioned, we have a local sheriff who was claiming that the members of the Elections Commission should be arrested because they gave guidance which allowed residents of nursing homes and other adult care facilities to vote. Um, and, and not to get into the weeds, but my, my response is, is always people who objected to that guidance, which was thoroughly vetted in public meetings of the Elections Commission and voted on in open meetings that the public could observe. It essentially allowed clerks to mail absentee ballots to those residents instead of sending in special voting deputies to conduct absentee voting. The alternative is simply that those people could not vote. And so anybody who is claiming that that guidance was flawed because the effects of a pandemic were not anticipated in a state statute, um, they have to acknowledge and admit that they simply do not want those voters, eligible voters, to vote. Um, and I think it's really you know, unfortunate and cynical to have an elected law enforcement official to be promoting this theory that public servants should be arrested for votes that they took in a public meeting, which saved the opportunity for individuals to vote. So, you know, thinking about, uh, well, first, first, I should say on the point you just made, even if the board made a mistake of law, I mean, that's the kind of thing that happens fairly often that an administrative body makes a decision and then a, a court comes in and says, no, you, you read the statute wrong or you didn't have the authority to do this. Um, the idea that this would cross the line into criminal liability is just, uh, it's worth pointing out, is just uh, a ridiculous claim that you know, requires that there was some kind of uh, corrupt intent. That brings me to the claims that have been made in this investigation that's been led by a former state Supreme Court Justice in Wisconsin, Michael Gableman. And this uh, investigation in Wisconsin seems to be very much 
coming along the same lines as a Trump follow-on kind of investigation, much like the Arizona uh, so-called audit of votes by the cyber ninjas, this group that had no experience auditing elections that uh, Trump was looking for bamboo in ballot paper to try and find a connection to China. I mean, pursuing kind of really crazy theories and ultimately produces no evidence whatsoever that the election in Arizona was not done fairly. Could you tell us how did this Gableman investigation start? What has he found and and uh, how have you reacted to all of it? Because I know that uh, you, you're, you're playing a part in this as well. Right. So I'm the city attorney for the city of Madison, and, and it's one of the large cities in Wisconsin that um, Attorney Gableman has targeted as part of his investigation. I guess starting with the broad strokes, in my view, this effort, it's an embarrassment to the legal profession, to be frank about it. It's not an investigation. It's a propaganda effort, and it's being funded by Wisconsin taxpayers. It's, it's just an embarrassment to the state, to be frank. It started because uh, Assembly Speaker Voss apparently was getting some pressure that he was not pushing hard enough to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And he had a conversation with former President Trump, who apparently was putting some pressure on him, and he uh, found a way to conduct an investigation and essentially was able to uh, unilaterally you know, say where the state is going to spend uh, $676,000, I think, to conduct an investigation. There are no new facts being uncovered. There is nothing, uh, this, by the way, I mean, Justice Gableman, uh, after the election, claimed that the results were invalid. Uh, he went into this election with his viewpoint. He's not uncovering any new facts. There's been no serious effort to arrange depositions. He's issued subpoenas. He's requested records. The city of Madison has provided over 16,000 pages of records there's been no follow-up questions or inquiry. The effort, it, it's not about what is true and false. It's about keeping this issue in the news, of course. And the goal seems to be to, to keep the, the big lie alive as a political issue through the next election. He's issued a couple of interim reports. We are in court uh, regarding subpoenas that he issued to our mayor, and the mayor of a few other Wisconsin cities, as well as subpoenas issued to members of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. We have a scheduling conference on April 1st. Assembly Speaker Voss has indicated he may withdraw those subpoenas. So I don't know where the litigation is will, will end up. It may end up uh, being terminated. But I think this investigation just is going to have you know, a longstanding impact on the, the environment, the political environment and the election administration environment in Wisconsin. I want to get to that issue, but before we do, I just want to delve a little deeper into one of the specific claims that the former justice is making, and it's related to funding of the 2020 election. So just to remind our listeners, the 2020 election took place in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, the pandemic increased costs significantly for the running of elections. You had to send out print and send out a lot more mail-in ballots because people weren't comfortable voting in person and you had to have safety protocols in place for people who were voting in person. And uh, although the federal government 
considered additional funds to help fund the 2020 election. There was inadequate federal funding. And so some private foundations stepped up, including a foundation that uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife were the donors to. And now Justice Gableman uh, is claiming that because some election jurisdictions in Wisconsin took some money from a group that was funding it through the Mark Zuckerberg Foundation, that this somehow counted as bribery and also that it was somehow improper because there were efforts to try to reach voters who might have been harder to reach, voters of color, poor voters. So can you talk about whether or not there was anything either illegal or unethical or nefarious about the acceptance of this money? Well, certainly not. And and your listeners may be familiar with these grants from the Center for Tech and Civic Life. And we had a federal lawsuit before the election. Um, This was an issue. And the federal judge appointed by President Trump found that there was nothing illegal about municipalities accepting these grants or using them for election administration. And a number of courts, um, federal courts throughout the country, made the same finding. So it's already been um, found at various levels. There was those court decisions. There was a complaint filed with the Wisconsin Elections Commission. That agency found that there was nothing that violated state law. That decision has been appealed to a state circuit court. Uh, We're in the middle of that litigation as well. This attorney bringing these lawsuits and complaints is part of the the Gableman investigation. He, as a side note, conducted he conducted uh, interviews with people in nursing homes that implied that they needed to pass a test, a knowledge test, in order to vote, to be eligible to vote. But getting back to the grants, it's been found over and over again that they're legal. There's nothing illegal about them. They were used to assist the clerk's office in conducting the elections, um, purchasing items like hand sanitizer for polling places, purchasing absentee ballot drop boxes um, because we knew there would be a huge explosion in the number of absentee ballots, helping to pay poll workers who were lacking because of the, the concerns about working at the polls during a pandemic, reaching out through the media to provide public information to voters. All of these things are activities that Uh, Attorney Gableman knows the grants were used for. He spun this story about the Zuckerbergs uh, providing or basically funding elections. And all these theories are going nowhere. To me, it's a perverse view of the world to claim that election officials violate the law by providing information and tools that the voters need to vote. He has spun this all as a get out the vote effort, as if it's an effort of a political campaign to turn out voters only for that side. And that's not at all what is happening. In Wisconsin, we don't even have voter registration by party. We don't, the clerks don't know who is a Democrat and who's a Republican and who's a Libertarian. Those election f- officials stress customer service and reaching out to voters uh, where they're at. I don't know of any other area where we tell public officials to make it as hard as possible for your customers to to navigate a public process. But that seems to be the philosophy behind targeting um, everything that uh, election officials did in the 2020 election. Well, so let's 
conclude our discussion by turning to the big picture, which you talked about before, which is what does this mean for people's confidence in the election process going forward? How do you see us moving beyond this? Uh, it really seems that Wisconsin uh, is one of the few states, maybe I'd put North Carolina in there, uh, that's really ground zero for these partisan fights over how elections are run. Really, you've got divided government, the governors and a, and a legislature from different parties. They're fighting over all of these questions about how elections are run. There are all these claims coming from the right that the elections are being stolen. Where do we go from here? How do you think we can move forward? Or is there nothing to do in this moment? You know, we, we always try to be optimistic that that there's, there's something that can be done. And I think your your question, I would say, for me, it prompts thoughts of everything from gerrymandering to Russia. And And what I mean by that is, first of all, apart from the broader view, all of these investigations and conspiracy theories have had real and personal consequences for election officials. We have local clerks being harassed and threatened. And in Wisconsin, two-thirds of those clerks are part-time. They don't have a lot of staff and resources, and they're just trying to do their job. And, and this is also undermining confidence, of course, in our, in our elections. And uh, not to be too dramatic, but overly dramatic about it, but you know, these days the public and elected officials are all rightfully outraged by what's going on in Ukraine. And everybody wants to talk tough about standing up to Russia. And meanwhile, we have efforts here at home that are frankly doing Russia's work for them. They're blatant lies that are, that are aimed at pulling our country apart. So I was at the Elections Commission when Russia's attempts to interfere in the 2016 election became known, including apparent attempts to try to test Wisconsin's election security. I've been in Homeland Security briefings regarding election security and the dangers of disinformation and the importance of combating it. Um, so this investigation and all the sideshows around it are just promoting that disinformation. And, you know, as election officials, we've spent the last few years really focusing on trying to combat disinformation. But I've seen recent studies saying that that really has not been effective. And that's discouraging, that people are so divided into their camps that they're not open to factual information. So I, I am frustrated and discouraged. And the answer, you know, typically in a democracy is you change leadership, but then you get back to the gerrymandered districts that we have in Wisconsin and and that that theory just does not hold as true as uh, you would hope and expect in a democracy. Well, that seems like a very sad note to end on. I, I could ask you about your experience being a backup quarterback at Harvard or a Zamboni driver, which I learned uh, in uh, seeing your bio. But, uh, you know, just thinking about somewhat of a positive note, uh, I do think that people are more aware of these kinds of efforts today. And there is a kind of vigilance about the election system's integrity that there wasn't in the past. And so maybe that provides some hope that, um, that, that people are not going to take it. I think, I think the reaction to Arizona uh, was that um, Arizona was kind of a laughingstock having this months-long process of trying to recount these ballots. And maybe the same thing will be 
uh, with the Gableman investigation, there it's already picked up the attention of 60 Minutes and and, uh, and other stories. So maybe we're at the bottom and and things are looking up. I don't know if you can can share a little bit of my uh, potential optimism for the future. I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I I grew up in Wisconsin, not far outside of Madison. I you know it's a state I love, and I have I have a lot of faith and optimism in in the people of Wisconsin. Um, I, you know, as you know, Megan Wolf, our elections commission uh, administrator and my successor, she's much more uh, diplomatic, I think, about phrasing how we approach this um, rather than maybe my, uh, me being a little bit more cynical. But um, as she points out, we have to take these as opportunities to try to continue to do a better job educating the public. And, and, and as you said, there's been a lot more focus on elections and hopefully something uh, good will come out of all, all of that attention. Well, Michael Haas, thank you for all that you've done to try to make the running of elections in Wisconsin better. And uh, I wish you luck in the current environment. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure. Thank you very much, Rick. The ALB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UC Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.